Well, well, good morning. We're in the middle of a month where we're talking about this is my story, where the preaching staff, the pastors of our church are going to tell you their testimony and you get to hear all the, the juicy details. So today you're stuck with me and no, I know what you're thinking. Normally there's a beautiful woman next to him up there, uh, which is my wife in case you're wondering. And my wings have been clipped. I'm here alone. I've been abandoned. Now, if you want to hear her story, you got to pay for that because we got a class where you can, what's the class called? <laughs> this is my story. Oh, so if you want to hear the real juicy story, you got to pay to pay to play. So she's going to be doing that class and you'll hear her story and, and you'll hear a lot of people in this church, you'll get to hear their story and like get some pointers on how to craft and tell your story. So it's going to be an awesome, awesome opportunity. I can't wait to, to be a part of that as well, to hear some of your stories. So please sign up. It's going to be very good. So the reason that we're even doing this is because we believe that as scripture does teach and demonstrate that our stories, our testimonies are the, one of the most powerful things that we can share with a person outside of the cross of Christ the most powerful thing that you have is your own testimony. And so we think it's important to develop and, and craft and be able to tell, you know, succinctly and concisely your story and get that across to people because there's somebody that needs to hear your specific testimony. There is somebody, like, you may not think that you're all that special and you're not, but your story is, and it may affect somebody greatly. So I want to encourage you to, to take that opportunity whether you take the class or not, start working on how to tell your story. So for me, my earliest memories, look at that cute kid. Oh my, he's, he's adorable, a little slugger, goodness. Seven, eight years old at that point. St. Cloud Little League, if you don't know where St. Cloud is, don't worry about it anymore, it doesn't matter. So that's where I grew up, and uh, that's 1991. Whew. Wow, flashbacks. So... I remember having a, a really fun childhood. Uh, we, we were not a church-going family. We just, not that we were like opposed to God, like, ah, get out of here. But we just weren't a church-going family. And um, we just, we didn't, didn't really see the need. Didn't really talk about faith in the house a, a whole lot at all. And we, but we had a lot of fun. I, I remember like every other weekend going to Disney and, and having fun time with my siblings, great memories. And around this age is where, in hindsight, I look back on this and go, man, that was, that was a big indicator that things weren't really going as smoothly as I thought in the home. At seven years old, I was exploring the house, and I got into this area that was, had a lock on it. So if, if you want your kids to not get into a place, put a lock on it, and they'll just bypass it anyway. So... There was this, this area that had been locked off to me. I was able to weasel myself in because I was a lot thinner. And I got in and then got up into the attic where I discovered a box. And I go to this box, I open it up, and this is my first exposure to pornography. And my dad had hid this box up in the attic where he put all that because he thought he was really clever. Now, on a serious note, if you got a box, burn that piece of garbage. If you've got something like that that you're hiding away because you think you can handle it, but you're keeping it out of the reach of other people, they have more reach than you might understand. And for the sake of children, 
get rid of this stuff and get it out of your freaking life if they don't need to be exposed to it. So at seven years old, look at that boy. His mind is processing hardcore pornography. Do you think that that mind can handle that information? It really can't. I didn't know what I was looking at, didn't know how to process it, but I knew this was new. I knew this was something different. So much so that I decided I was gonna take one of those magazines out of the box and bring it, of all places, to school to educate people further, right? So I'm in first grade, and I'm just thumbing through this with this kid. Hey, look at this. And I'm exposing other people now to this. And I remember that I got called down to the office. Why? I don't know. And I get down to the office, and they had to call my mom and bring her in. What a, what a uh, proud moment for mom, right? And this, like I said, I, I didn't think much about it after that. I was seven. I still, I didn't even know. I was like, I'm down in the office. I don't even know why. Right? I, did, I didn't really get it. I wasn't processing it. But that for me was a marker that things were, in hindsight, about to get a little wild. So at about 11 years old, my parents split. They divorced. And I, at that point, don't see my dad but maybe once or twice a year. And for a kid that age who, the only reason I was playing baseball was for him because he loved it. And I wanted to please dad. I wanted him to be proud of me. And I was really good. I was like always the best player on my team and like seeing him was like full of joy when I'd come up to him and I was like, all these suckers out here, they can't play like me. You know, like that just, you know what I'm talking about. Like being good at something and seeing your parent enjoy that was like awesome. And then it's gone. He's gone. And so I got really confused really quick. Like, why are they gone? Why is he leaving? Why doesn't he want to see me play? Why doesn't he want to be a part of these things? I've got questions. I've got... I'm dealing with trying to be, uh, grow up as an adolescent boy, which is like one of the hardest things you can do other than give birth, probably, is grow up as an adolescent boy. It's really hard and stupid. Like, why did we have to do, go through this? You know, that's a, that's a skeptic in my head. Like, God, why did you make adolescence? Why did we have to do this? So I was having a hard time of it, and then dad splits. It makes it even more difficult. So I'm, I'm depressed. I'm confused. I'm wondering whose fault it is, and I don't know whose fault it is. All I know that this thing that sucks is happening to me, and I'm, I'm going through that. So the best way that I could figure that I could cope with it was to start abusing drugs and alcohol really early. So 11, 12 years old, I'm getting blackout drunk, like puking my guts out, passing out from the amount that I would ingest. And so the friends that I had at the time were also going through similar experiences and their parents were splitting they were leaving and like everybody's all confused and all we wanted to do was not feel what we were feeling and so I would take anything that you put in front of me and I'd ingest it put it down as long as it blacked out and numbed the feel that I had at the moment I failed sixth grade I wonder why how could that be I was already super distracted just in general, I was an A-B student, went to failing, not even passing any classes. So I, I, it's not that I was stupid. I was super distracted, confused and hurting and abusing things that were just like shutting everything down. I couldn't focus at school, couldn't pay attention to anything that was put in front of me. I began to believe after I failed that I had mental problems, that I was stupid. Like I had an actual mental block that I couldn't understand concepts and math and all this stuff. So I started to believe it because I was failing. So obviously, there's something wrong with me. 
All of my all of my friends, like I said, we were in the same kind of group, and their parents, like my mom, was working two jobs. She just to keep us fed, four kids, no dad around. Like she's working double time, hardly sleeping, just to keep food on the table. What that made an opportunity for was abuse the heck out of all this time that I've got. So I'd spend a lot of time with my friends on weekends, and we, like we would just do anything and everything that is like if it's if it is illegal, we were doing it. If you said this is illegal, like, that sounds fun, so we'd go and do it. I began to steal regularly. I, I started at Circle K down the street, and I would go and I'd steal candy, and I'd progress to, like, baseball and football cards and then cigarettes, and then I was like, ah, oh, well, that's not fun anymore. I need to up the game a little bit, and we'd go, and I'd just walk up into somebody's yard, steal a bike, and I've been in stolen cars. It's, it's, it just started getting worse and worse. I remember this particular weekend where we had a friend whose father was a paraplegic and was, I don't know how or where he got access to this kind of, this kind of weed, but it was super potent where I, I've, I've smoked a good bit at this time and I, it would take a little bit to like get to a place where I was high, one hit of it and I was, I was lit, like, like out of my mind high. And so it was high quality, whatever it was. Maybe there was something else laced into it. But I just remember going, man, I don't feel anything, and this feels awesome. Let me just pause for a second. I'm not glorifying drugs. I was making horrible mistakes while on it. <laughs> so I'll give you a few of those. So the night that we got that high, I remember getting on my bike. We were like, let's go ride our bikes in the middle of the night, unsupervised, teenagers, 12, 13 years old. And we were going down the, or we're about to cross over 192, which runs right through St. Cloud and into Kissimmee. And we're, I'm riding my bike, and I'm so high that I fall asleep on my bike. I'm just mid-stride, just like, I can't keep my eyes open anymore. And I'm crossing the main highway. The thing that wakes me up is screeching tires. And so I'm like, what? I look to my left. I see the car coming. I pedal just enough to get out of the way. He swerves just enough to miss my back tire. If I had been any more high that night, I probably would have been hit by that car. So maybe the grace of God just kind of like not allowing the smoke to go all the way down in on one puff. Or I don't know. That's just the way my mind works. I apologize. But I could have been easily dead that night. I remember getting across the street and seeing guys like my friends just like kind of like freaked out. And if you're high, you're freaked out most about anything. But they were freaked out about the fact that their friend was almost dead. And I get across the street, and I'm like, man, I'm never smoking weed again. We're done with this. Blah, blah. We get back to the house and just keep on lighting up the bowls. And we're just going and going and going. Because as much as I had a moment of near death, it still didn't trump the fact that I didn't want to feel. That was more powerful for me. I didn't want to feel this reality that I was living in. So I failed sixth grade. What's really fun is when you fail sixth grade and you see all your friends go on and continue to take classes together and develop friendships, and then you get put in the remedial classes. That's a whole lot of fun. That's sarcasm. I hated it. It was super embarrassing. Did not like it at all. And that's where it was just further confirming that I'm dumb, that I'm stupid. I can't, I can't handle life like everybody else can. My dad, I get word that he's going to prison for I don't know what, because I'm not allowed to know the information but he's going to prison. I remember the day, the last day that I see him before he had to go. And he was in my living room. He, for some reason, 
I don't know how, but he stayed the night at our house. And I, in the living, I, I wake up, I see him in the living room. We have our, our goodbye. And I just remember when the van came to pick me up, to take me to school, just going, I'm, 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 I'm gutted. I'm emotionally torn up, I'm beat up, and I'm sitting in the back of the van because I, I just like, I don't want to be an eye shot of anybody because I've never worked so hard to not completely lose it and just tear up and just lose it in front of people. And I wanted to do anything but go to school that day because I'm, I'm, I'm wrecked. And I didn't want to show up already stupid and then a sobbing baby in front of my friends. And so that's the reality I'm living with. And I just, I'm like, I, I wanted to skip school. I wanted to find any way that I could get out of there. I didn't want to be seen anymore. I didn't want to live anymore. I was really starting to entertain thoughts of suicide really seriously. And I'm like, what, what, what if there's no, if this is it, what upshot do I have? What, what can come in and, 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 and make this all better? And I couldn't see it. Couldn't see anything that could help it. I get arrested because my thieving days finally catch up with me. This is kind of funny. So I go to Bell's Outlet. And I'm with my buddies. And we're like, let's go steal. Let's go get some clothes. I'm like, all right, that's cool. Let's do this. So... I find the shirt that I want, I fold it, put it down my pants, and like I had a long shirt, so it kind of like hit it. I'm giving tips here on how to steal. Um, so take notes. And so like it hit it, but you know, obviously I'm high, so I can't perceive that somebody's watching me or that cameras exist, because when you're high, cameras don't even exist. And so they catch me, and as I'm going out the store, I feel this arm grab me and goes, gotcha son, come on in here. Funny thing is the brand of the shirt was gotcha. It's a surf brand. Anybody remember Gotcha? I got got. So I get arrested. I go downtown. I'm sitting there waiting for my mom. So there's a theme here. I bring pornography to school. I get caught with it. My mom comes. I get caught stealing. I go downtown. My mom comes. All, all that I'm thinking now is like all I can do is disappoint this woman who's working super hard. But it's not enough to deter me. But like I'm like, man, I, I can't even look her in the face. She comes and she's like, well, hey, why don't you go ahead and ride that bike home? And so I have to dread seeing her back at home. And, I mean, she had every right to make me drive, ride my bike home. But it was just, I, I couldn't win at anything. And I was just getting further and further and spiraling down. Of that group of friends that I was, was hanging with, one killed himself in his mother's room at home. The other one died of a heroin overdose. And I was right in there with them. I was thinking the same thoughts. I was doing the same stuff. I didn't do heroin, but it was on my list. I was working in that direction. At this time, I'm 14 years old, and I meet a friend of mine. His name's Adrian. And he was the first Christian person that I've ever met who was legitimately what they said they were. And we struck up a friendship. And he would invite me to youth meetings and stuff like that. So I'd go, and like, I'd, I wouldn't pay attention because like, I was like, man, girls are hot. So I'm going to pay attention to them, whatever. I was just interested in women. And uh, so, but again, like, I'm, I'm still like, I kind of interested in this group of people that are just, they seem really kind and, and generous people. And so like, I, was, I was getting really interested in what this faith thing was all about. 
Now, years later, after I became a Christian, my, my friend did come to me and he said, I was really scared of you at that time. <laughs> I was afraid of you. If I showed you pictures, you'd be like, I don't want my kids hanging out with that kid. And I was doing a lot of things that were not good to do. Um, for example, the group of friends that I was with, there was a, a weekend where we got drunk out of our minds and our, our friend's father owned a hotel in St. Cloud, which is not luxurious. And we, we used that hotel room area to just get absolutely plastered and high. And we heard a bar fight downstairs that we were like, let's go check that out because we're not making good decisions. Let's go there where other people aren't making great decisions. And we see this bar fight, you know, finally in the, in the, the, the winner, we saw him win and we're like, Man, that guy's pretty awesome. He just beat the crap out of that other guy. And he's like, you guys want to go for a ride? And we get in this drunk man's car, a bunch of teenagers, and we're driving down uh, Orange Blossom Trail at 2 in the morning. And we come up to a light where we turn and we look at the car next to us, and it's one of my friends in the car. It's his dad. And we're like, everybody lay down. And so we all lay down, and we're all on top of each other. Now, we come to find out later he was out trying to pick up some prostitutes for the evening. And when we discovered that, we were like, that's the house to party at now. So, because he, he, he would let us do whatever we wanted in that house. And we'd see him bring women in to that house. And it was just, it was, it was just craziness that we were getting away with and doing. Maybe that's why Adrian was afraid of me. <laughs> he is a, the son of a preacher. Right? So, kind of different lifestyles happening. But he, for whatever reason, pushed past his fear to, to share his faith with me. And all I want to say all that for is if there's somebody that you're afraid to share your faith with, that's the person you need to share it with. Because you have no idea what that could do for that person. You have no idea how that could alter their story by you telling yours to them. So, you probably even, as I'm saying this, have a person in your mind that you might be afraid to bring it up to. Do it. I challenge you to do it. It has forever changed me that he pushed past that fear. So, a few months, maybe a year after developing a really strong friendship with Adrian, he shares his faith with me, and it was like an uncomfortable moment for me, but also wonderful. So if you've ever been 14, anybody ever been 14? Everybody, pretty much? And somebody, a friend of yours, expresses deep concern and care for you, that's weird, a little bit, right? A little bit, because you're not there yet. You're not ready for that. You know, family, your, your parents might love on you and tell you all kinds of things, but for your friends to express and, and be vulnerable with their heart toward you is not a common thing. So this guy went apparently on a weekend where he, he at his church, and they, they challenged him to, you know, believe deeper the gospel and act on it. And he said, at that weekend, he said, David, I thought about you in a way I've never thought about you before. And I was like, what does this mean? Are we not friends anymore? Like, what's going on? And uh, <clears throat> he said, I thought for a long time about you in a place that I would never want you to be. He said, I believe that heaven and hell are real and that you'll be in one of those places. And I imagined you being in hell. And I know that you don't believe yet, but I imagined you being there. And it broke my heart. 
because that means that you'd be separated from God forever and separated from me forever, and I don't want to live with that. And I just remember going, whoa, like, I, I, I can close my eyes right now and remember the place where I was standing, where he was standing, the clothes he was wearing, and it was just like such a real anchor moment for me. And I didn't get down on my knees and like accept what he was saying, but I was like, there's something real to this. For a message to affect a young man so much to share that kind of information with another young man is not insignificant, and that points to something that I think is very real. And so I, I just logged it in my mind. Maybe a year after that, I hear a gospel presentation, and I don't even really remember it deeply, but I just remember going, I think I want to believe this now. I think this is it for me. This is my time to believe this. And so I, I believed it, or said I did. I don't think I really deeply understood the cost of being a disciple of Jesus or really understood deeply repentance or how much Christ actually paid for me, but I knew that I wanted to start learning more about it. Around this time, I'm, I'm, I'm moving from St. Cloud to Orlando. My mom gets a job in Orlando. We move out here. And I'm no longer with that group of friends anymore. I only see Adrian and some of those other friendships I was developing like very rarely when I would convince somebody to finally drive me back to St. Cloud, which is hard to convince anybody to go to St. Cloud. If you've ever been there, it's hard to convince people to go back once they get out. So it was tough. But I started floundering because I wasn't plugged into a church. I wasn't developing my faith further. And around this time is when I heard about that friend who killed himself. And I go to the funeral and I'm, I don't know how to process that information. I'm wrecked. I don't, I'm like, my friend is no longer here. And the only way that I know how to cope with that is, again, just go get as high and as drunk as I can to try and just numb it out and get it out of my, my head so that I can at least sleep at night. And so that's what I did. I hooked up with an on-again, on-again, off-again girlfriend that was the first time I became sexually active, and now I can no longer give that to my wife when I meet whoever she is. And so all these decisions that I was making was just starting to crush me. And I didn't have a place to really call home or a way to develop my faith, or so I thought. Anybody know the Gates family? Or at least you used to be a Gate, you abandoned your family, you married a Reed. Janelle on the back. Her family reached out to my sisters, who I'm just, I'll eternally be thankful for your family, because without them inviting my sisters, I don't come. And when they invited me out, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, maybe there's going to be people like Adrian there who care about me, at least to where I don't have to put as much alcohol down my throat as I can to numb it all out. Maybe, maybe they'll have something that's a little different. And so, sure enough, I came, and it was different. I mean, it, was, it was what I was wanting. It was, it was absolutely, I, I felt that inclusion, that, that pulling in, that inviting in that I was so craving. And I just have to take a moment to just say, I, I don't think you, I could sit here and tell you how thankful I am for this church, and it wouldn't do it justice. I don't stand up here confidently. I don't stand up here alive, probably, if it weren't for the people of this place. 
This is not just a building with walls and a roof on it. It is a living, breathing representation of Christ on earth to me. And I am forever eternally thankful for the relationships and the people that helped pull me in. Unbelievable what it is when you put your roots down in a place where the presence of God is and where he's living in other people. Unbelievable. I, I cannot recommend anything other than Jesus as being better than that to a person is committing to a, a church and developing those strong relationships. And so what began to happen is every Sunday I would, I would come and not just feel included by the people here, but every sermon would hit me, hit me, hit, like in a good way and a bad way. Like it's pissing me off one week, but, it's, but they said the truth. And, like, and I'm like, do they, have, do they have freaking cameras in my bedroom now? Is that, they're spying. They're spies. Mom, did you tell on me? No, I, I don't know. But that's what was going through my head. You know, I'm like, man. And that's just evidence that God's hunting you down. Like when every sermon is just like getting you, just, just give up and give in and let him have his way with you because it's a lot harder <laughs> that way to resist. So that started happening, and I was like, okay, something's up. Then I get invited on a beach retreat. Don't do that. Not if you don't want to get plugged in. Don't go on events. Don't go to events if, you don't, if you're like, ah, I don't want to be plugged in. So I go on a, a beach retreat, and this is where the first time I ever felt challenged to actively do something with my faith or deepen my understanding of a thing. And the, there was a, a teaching that was done on that weekend, and it was done by the greatest Bible teacher I'd ever known at the time, Jim Sellers. And he gave a teaching on how to study the Word of God. And before then, I was just doing Bible roulette, like start in Genesis, because that's a great place for a non-Jewish person to try to understand God. Like, so I was just completely messed up with how to read, and, and he just like laid it out and made it like, oh, man. So like, that's when I started going, I can really start connecting with this stuff, and it makes sense now, and I was given the tools. So forever, thank you, Jim. And then... Shortly after that, maybe a year passes, and I go on a youth conference, maybe less than a year, a youth conference. Anybody remember Joel 2 moment? Is there anybody still here? Anyway, I got a couple, just the pastor's family. Um, long story short, there's a teaching on the cross that for the first time I remembered going, I, I get it. And I, and I got it. Like, I get it, but I, I got it. Like, I experienced the, the, the heart connection to the gospel. And it was presented by Pastor Peter. And I got to set it up. The way that it hit me so deeply was I was already convinced that I'm, I've, I'm sinful and I've committed all kinds of sins. But he presented it in a way where each of us were to go away privately and just kind of write down all of the sins that you know that you are guilty of and just write them all on your hands. So I go and I'm, I'm writing them all on my hands. I'm running out of hands. You know, I'm like, I've done a lot. Do you understand how much I've done? And then we would go to this bowl that was, had dye put in it to make it look red, like blood. And he said, you know, he, he talked about how Christ spilled blood on the cross and that covers our sin. And I just remember that moment being like, it, for me, a holy moment where I just go and now I wash all of my sins off my hand with his blood. Which, anybody that doesn't have a church background, that is a freaking weird thing to do to them, right? To make them do that. 
But for those of us who understand the price that was paid for us in that blood, I mean, that, it, was, it made my heart come alive to the gospel because I'm like, he paid that for me. He did that not just for him or for her, but that's where my heart, it's like seeing in black and white and then color. Now freedom starts hitting me. Now I'm not feeling the, the craving of alcohol and drugs to numb me. Now I'm like, now this thing actually, when I ingest Christ, I get alive. I get more free. And it just absolutely changed everything for me. That was a critical moment for my heart. And I believe that for all of us, that our hearts need to be saved, our minds need to be saved, and our social lives need to be saved. I think those are the three ways that God saves us. That moment for me, emotionally, where my heart finally got it and grabbed a hold of the gospel and came alive, was at that youth conference teaching, and I'll eternally be grateful that Pastor Peter obeyed God and, and, and brought it and, and delivered it full bore, just presented it, stripped bare, this is what our faith is, and it will forever be something I'm grateful to you for, so thank you, brother. Then there's the intellectual part of our minds that need to be saved, and for me, this started to come alive, and, and I really feel like God was sanctifying my brain when I actually took that faith that now my heart was believing and I started sharing it with somebody else and going outside of the walls of my church. And where I, what happened is I, I was confronted with questions and skeptical people. And they'd give me a question. And i go, I've never thought of that. It would drive me harder back to the Bible and harder back to archaeology and harder back to his, the historical record of things. And every time, without exception, every time that I've had somebody push back like that, I've come away more deeply convinced of this. Not just because of the heart, but because every time I look at that, I'm, I'm like more and more convinced. Like the evidence just points that this is the best example. This is the best reason for how history played out from Rome when the small group of uh, just little fishermen and, and a minority of people just took over Rome with love. So much so that they were being killed for doing it. And I just, I just became absolutely convinced every time. So I'm never afraid of any question. And the Lord has saved my mind. I no longer think I'm an idiot. No, I, I no longer think that I'm stupid. It's nice to know that more than a few agree. <clears throat> Thank you. Time for a drink? It's not vodka. Don't worry. And then socially, for me, the way that I believe that I've been saved socially is I was a part of a group of people that were killing themselves, and I was going to be with them eventually. Left alone, I'd have been right in there with them, and God took me out of that place, placed me in this church, connected me with men and women who absolutely loved and adored me, and, and were not afraid to tell me when I'm wrong, which was often and they were kind about it, and I loved that. So I was saved socially, and I'll say that I believe, I believe it's absolutely stunningly clear that we ought to become members of a church. Like, you can't read the Bible and come away thinking that that's like a loose end, not tied up well. Like, why on earth would Paul be writing letters to churches if he didn't think we should be a part of them, right? 
But for me, I go away from that. Like I, I can make that intellectual argument about why you should join a church and be a part of a church. But I have experienced the fullness of what a church has to offer to a person who wants to, to be a part of it. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of money you could offer me today. And the reason is that these people have given me more hope than I could have ever gotten from any other place. And I want to take just a, a couple of minutes to honor and lift up some of those people. Some of them may be here, some of them may not be. And just tell them how much I appreciate what they, what they meant for me as the body of Christ. And Pastor Mark, that's my dad. My biggest void in my life other than salvation, I had no dad. He took me in under his wing. When I, before I was dating or married to Aslan, and he, he was a dad to me, mentored me. And I'll for, forever be grateful to him and his wife, who I don't think I've ever been encouraged more by a person than by you, maybe your mom, and it's a stiff competition there. Like both just unbelievably like felt love from them. Jim Sellers, you taught me how to read the word, and there's no greater gift other than the cross to, to be able to comprehend what I'm reading and connect with God that he gave to us, and you will forever be a mark on my life for that, and I love you for that. Thank you. Pastor Phil Weekly, that's my granddad. I didn't have a grandfather. He's, he's, if you could make a blueprint for a grandfather, that's him. Super wise, super loving, generous with his time, and there, there have been so many moments where he would pull me aside and prophetically speak into my life or just take me fishing and just warn me about things that are coming that I couldn't see, and that's invaluable. And if you don't have that, my heart breaks for you. Get that. I know it's offered here. I know it is. Mike and Moggy McCubbin, financially backing my wife and I when we were trying to adopt, and Mike, for years would say, he, he, he shared this with me after he'd been doing it. He said, you know, at night I would lay down in my bed and before I would go to sleep, I would pray that you and your wife would be able to have children. And he goes, I would knock and knock and knock until it happened. I can't tell you how much I needed that and the, the things that he was able to break through in prayer that I couldn't. And we have now a wonderful little five-year-old tornado. <laughs> Should have been more, no, I'm kidding. Um, Neil Radloff was a man who gave me an opportunity when I knew nothing about work ethic. <laughs> and Jimmy, I'm not leaving you out on that. I, was, I worked with Jim and Neil, and these two men fathered me in how to work with my hands and develop skills and and, 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 and like push after adversity and they poured into me and I'll forever be grateful for them because they've given me tools and, and confidence to go and try things that I would never have had the confidence to do before. And my mom, if you're watching, is, it's kind of good she's not here because to hear this, hear these things from your own son could be hard, right? So she'll have to watch it online. But mom, I love you. You were dealt a really tough hand, and you did an amazing, amazing work. 
It's a miracle what you pulled off with your four kids. And I'm your favorite. Sorry, Ryan, Melissa, and Amanda. If you'll stand up, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and close this here. But I want to thank you for listening to my story. It's the truth. It's what happened. I'm not ashamed of it because God was able to take something extremely tough and turn it into something extremely beautiful. And if you don't think I'm beautiful, you're wrong. Um, I'm kidding. What he did with my life is just a miracle. I'd be dead. I'm alive. Father, we thank you that you're just, you're a life giver. You spoke life into existence, and then when life turned its back on you and died, you said, I'm not going to leave it that way. And you came, and you brought life with you, and you, you, you dole it out to anybody who's willing. And Father, for somebody today who's on the fence about going in on this, believing in Christ and believing in the cross, I pray that you would help them get over whatever hurdles in front of them, that they would accept it today, that they would believe that this gospel is real and can change their, their situation. There's nobody too far gone. There's no person who sinned too much that they can't come and believe. And Lord, for those of us who are still needing that emotional connection to the cross, that Lord, you would give it to them today or this week or whenever seems right to you because you're in charge anyway. But Lord, that's what I want for them. I want that emotional connection to come and be real and they see in color instead of just black and white. And Father, for the intellectual connection that needs to be made for some of us where we believe this deep with our hearts, but we have some doubts and some questions, I pray that we would confront those doubts and go to the word and test it and see it, see what it says and see that it stands the test of time and all scrutiny. And Lord, I pray that socially people at this church would be so utterly committed to what you died to establish that we would see just amazing relationships become more and more free and more and more connected to fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in this place because I have tasted it and it is good here. I thank you for this church and we praise your name, the name above all names. In Jesus' name we all say amen. What an awesome testimony. Not really much to say after that, but they make me come out here. So um, it was awesome. Revelation says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We've heard an awesome testimony. So this week, guys, go out and be an Adrian or be a Gates or be a Neil Radloff or somebody that you can impact somebody's life. Guys, you have an amazing week. See you next. Love you guys.